Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Yuma, daf Kaf Bet, page 22. We are in a new parak, Perak Sheini, the second parak, and we begin with, instead of, you know, jumping right into the Avodah Yom Kippurim, we start talking about the, the Avodah of the regular day, right? Every day, what did they do? And the Mishnah here speaks about how the Kohanim were assign the different jobs that they had on the given day. This came up in the last parak, you know, by the by. And we mentioned it then that there was a discussion of a lottery. Here is really the discussion of how they end up with a lottery and so on. The mission begins. At the beginning, right, whatever the beginning is, right, initially, the Kohanim, um, whoever wanted to remove the ashes from the altar, this is called Trumat Hadeshen, we do it. That you know, everybody wanted anybody who wanted to do it would do it. But then there came to be many koanim who wanted to do this, and how they they figured it out who would get to do it. Right? They determined who would do it by having them race. The fact that this is the the way they did it to begin with, meaning not to begin with, as as a way of adjudicating which of the many should get to do the job is kind of hilarious to me, you know, that, okay, go for it. But that's really what it was. They would run and they would go up the ramp and whoever got there first, you know, to the top of the Mizbeach within Dalat Amot, four cubits, right? That's always our measurement of the, of the top of the Mizbeach first would be the one who would get the privilege of doing Trumat Hadeshen, of removing these ashes. What would happen if they had a tie? Then if, they were, if there's a tie, then the appointed priest, right, the person who is there overseeing everything, would say to all of them, to all of the Koyanim, put, uh, put up your fingers. Hitzbiu nowadays is uh, also the word that means to vote. But or to you know to to raise your finger to to I guess literally to vote to sign on for something. But in this case, it's really just a matter of putting out their fingers, and then they would uh, then they would begin the lottery, and that's what we're going to see next. So what does it mean that they would they would stick out their fingers for this lottery? They could put out one or two fingers, right? Meaning, I think this means. You know, how do you how do you hold your hand when you're putting out your hand to be counted? Does it really have to be just one specific finger and which specific finger? So when it says one or two fingers, I think it means, you know, one or two together. But they would not put forth a, a thumb in the Beit HaMikdash, which by itself is its own interesting thing. It's, and I guess we can talk about it at greater length later. Basically, the idea is that um, <laughs> there comes a point where, where they messed with it, right? Where they... They cheated the lottery by messing with a thumb or another finger. And then it would look like there'd be two different fingers for the one person and he'd have more of a chance of getting the lottery. Um, so, you know, do you have anything you want to add about the thumb before we go on? I find the thumb interesting. Yes, and we will. it will get talked about more on tomorrow's staff. Okay, fine. So then this happened, right? Again, this mission gives us an actual case of when when all of this was brought to bear, now, this of course is a challenge because they're running their race 
and they're both running up the ramp, and then one of them, and this is not pretty, one of them shoves another. One of them shoves the other, right? And then the guy who had been shoved falls, and he breaks his leg. Now, this is a problem in terms of doing the avoda to begin with, right, in terms of a broken leg. It's also a problem because, oh my goodness, he's broken his friend's leg, or his peer's leg. So the court saw that this was becoming risky. This is no longer simply a matter of uh, figuring out the numbers, but also in the drive to be the person with this honor, you know, people are putting each other at risk. So then they established the lottery. And that's, you know, that's really where we're going to go. They established the lottery because it wasn't just a matter of winning a race anymore. It was a matter of, um, you know, people took it too far. There were four different lotteries that they did in the Beit HaMikdash, you know, for the various different things that the Kohanim would do. And this is the first one, the removing of the ashes from the day before. The, the, you know, the Gemara now picks up, I mean, it's a pretty straightforward Mishnah, um, but the Gemara, but the Truman Adeshin is a very, very important piece of the Avoda that was done. And what the Gemara wants to figure out is, is, you know, why did they have to do this thing of sort of casting these lots or making it a lottery system? Um, you know, because we know that there are other parts of the um, sort of daily Avoda that always had a lottery system to it. But this came and but this the Trimadeshan became a lottery system later on. And the Gemara wants to sort of understand that. And it begins with the following question. Right? Why didn't they just institute this from the beginning? Right? Why did they have to wait? What what was the reason for? And so the Gemara sort of goes through here two different possibilities. Um, you know, Anne and I, we found that there was really a lot to talk about on this particular daf. Um, so I don't know if I'm going to read the entire thing inside. I may just talk about it a little bit outside. Um, so the Gemara basically gives, you know, two particular reasons um, how they eventually get to this Takana. And um, the first one is, is that they say, right? Because initially they thought that this was essentially a nighttime avoda, right? Most of the other avoda always takes place during the day. And this was just like something that you did at night. And they were like, who really wants to be bothered to do the avoda at night? There was something about it that just didn't seem to be, you know, as, uh, I guess, as appealing. And so therefore they figured, you know, it wasn't really going to be an issue. But then what did they see, right? They saw the later below Atsu that they wouldn't, you know, bother, they wouldn't, they wouldn't come to fight over it. But when they saw that they did, and it became a dangerous situation, right? Right. So then they, you know, instituted basically this lottery system. But the Gemara once has an interesting question here, which is, but we still have the piece of the Avoda, which was done with the Avarim and the um, Padrim, right? With the limbs and the fats of the Korban Tamid, of the evening Korban Tamid. Because part of that actually took place, right? That Korban Tamid was done in the afternoon. Um, but pieces of that still had to take place. The, the burning of it, right, uh, would take place uh, of, you know, uh, would take place during the night itself. And so the question is, okay, well, why didn't they make the lottery then for that as well? Because if it was an issue of a nighttime service, we know that there are other things that have to be done at the night 
as well. And so the Gemara answers here, Sofa Avoda Dimamahu. No, because it's really part of the daytime service. In other words, it relates to the korbanos that were given during the day. So it's sort of just a wrapping up of what happened during the day. So it's not really considered to be a nighttime service. There's something about Truman Hadeshan that really set it apart from everything else. It sort of was this avoda that took place, you know, um, by itself, right? So, right? So why can't we say that the Truman Hadeshan, when you remove that in the night, that's really the beginning of the daytime service. In other words, you have to have that removal of the ash in order to begin the service in the morning. And so then it goes on to quote Rabbi Yochanan, right? That who even brings a proof that said that if you got up in the middle of the night and you washed your hands in order to do the Truman Adeshan, you wouldn't have to wash your hands more uh, to you know, to do that beginning avoda. And so the Gemara's, you know, uh, says that, no, really amend that statement by saying, right? Just say, you already sanctified his hands, you know, before the actual service started. So in other words, it's saying it's not really part of the daytime service. It really is separate by itself. Now the Gemara is going to give an alternate uh, answer to this as well, right? So the first one was that it's the nighttime service. And it's really unique from all different types of avoda that's done, right? But there are others who would answer, right? That at first the rabbis thought, right? Because when the ashes were basically separated, right? There was people really want to be sleeping, right? Low atu, and that the Kohanim, they're not going to come. Nobody would volunteer to do, do it. But once they saw that Kohanim did want to come, the Ka'atu and basically came to be a dangerous situation. Takinu la Ravanan Paisa. So then they instituted this lottery service. So then the Gemara also wants to say the same thing. Right? But what about the limbs and the fat? Right? They're also done at night. And it's also when somebody really would like to be sleeping. And yet the rabbis always had this the lots instituted for it from the beginning. Why is it that, again, it should have been treated the same as the Truman Adeshan? And so then it says, which I thought was just a great answer because we know this is all true, Shani Migana Mimakem, right? Sleeping is different from rise. Sleeping is different from rising. In other words, finishing up what you need to do with the fats and with the limbs, that is something that had to be done before you actually went to bed. But the Truman Adeshan involved that you would actually have to get up from sleep. And so we know that getting up from sleep as opposed to going to bed later, that's something people really don't like to do. So that's why initially the rabbis didn't make any type of lottery system for the Truman Adeshan. Because it's one of those things you have to like force yourself to get up to do, right? We've all been there when we've had to do something like that. But eventually they saw that actually people really wanted to do that. Now, then they bring a brisa that, you know, contradicts the, that contradicts this mission. They talk about it um, a little bit more. But it's interesting to see, you know, how the Gemara really wants to sort of work through why was the lottery for the Truman Hadeshan different than the other types of lottery, Right there's always an understanding that there's basically too many Kohanim at any given time to do all of the avoda that's there. And therefore, we sort of have to come up with a system to allot it. But the Truman Adeshan seems to have its own special status. In a certain way, it seems like a less desirable avoda to do. But what the Mishnah comes to teach us is it eventually did become a very desirable 
have voted to do and in fact created a dangerous situation. So the rabbis had to come and treat it like any other avoda where it was really doled out by a lottery system. Well said. Um, okay, I want to jump ahead and just very briefly talk about uh, this business of how they would stick out their fingers to be counted or to be really the point is not to be counted, to be included in the lottery. And the concern is that they should not be counted. There's a prohibition, It's uh, the Gemara tells us here, and I'm going to do this a little bit. I'm not just going to read it straight through. Um, there's a concern that uh, whoever counts the numbers of Jews is violating the Torah to begin with. You violate a, a negative commandment. The, it was the number of the B'nai Israel, the number of the children of Israel with like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured. And this is a verse from Hosea. Um, and of course, it also comes up in Breshit, right? These are the, these are the promises to Avraham that B'nai Israel will not be numbered. Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak Amar Over B'Shnei Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak says, no, no, not just the one. There's another one. Shnei Amar Lo Yimad V'Lo Yisafer Lo Yisafer um, the, the verse in Hosea continues and it says, you know, they will not be measured, they cannot be counted. So when you come to count B'nai Yisrael, you're violating this principle that they cannot be counted, which of course is not the main, the plain sense of the text, right? The plain sense of the text is talking about um, the sum total of all of the people of Israel, whether over time, right? That that don't, don't think that there's a finite number to the number of people of B'nai Israel. It doesn't mean that we've got, you know, a handful of people for a, for a lottery. That's not the plain sense of the text. On the other hand, this is taken very seriously. And that's why they say, you know, they weren't counting the people, they were counting their fingers when they would stick out their fingers. Or perhaps they would take a shard of pottery and stick that forth, and then that would be counted. So as not to count the individuals involved. The One, one of the reasons I wanted to mention this, of course, is that this is still in play. When you if you're ever in a in shul very early when they're beginning to count for a minion, um, the tradition is not to count ten people there, right? They use a verse, Hoshia Atabacha, right? They they take the verse which has ten words in the verse and and mark off the people via the number of right till they get to the till they get enough people to line up with all of the words of the verse. The the rationale being we don't count B'nai Israel. Sometimes you'll hear people say, not one, not two, not three. Right, which again is kind of a funny way of quote not counting, but the idea is taking this seriously, um, even though at the end of the day, tachlis, what you're doing is um, coming up with a sum total. The idea is still to to do it in such a way that you are not at risk of violating this no this negative commandment of of actively counting the children of Israel. So we don't count. We don't count, even though the way we get around not counting is sometimes a little bit, you know, a little bit offbeat. What I thought was interesting here is I always thought this was one of these things, you know, not counting kind of more like a custom, but here they really talk about it as it's an actual low task set. Like it's really something that you are not allowed to do. Not just right. something that's like not nice to do. Well, and the reason that's interesting is that it's a verse from the Navi, meaning it's, there's no, there's no thou shalt not. It's, Meaning that's not quite true. It does say not to, that they are innumerable, that they are not to be counted. It's it's not a commandment the way we think of commandments in the Torah. Right. And it's clearly this is what we would call like an asmachta, right? It's, you know, taking a verse 
um, from, you know, Nach as opposed to from the five books and sort of saying like, well, this is going to be the source for it. Um, but it's clear, but right. I think that's a very important point is where the source comes from. This is not coming from the five books. It's not a classic low tasse, but they're using the language here in the dot that it is an actual low tasse. Right. Now, and then, you know, we talked about this a day or two ago about, you know, sort of the counting of the 613, which again, if you feel that there's really sort of a finite number of low tasses or assays, it's interesting for them to do this. But I think, again, this is more just to emphasize how important this is to do, as opposed to whether or not it's really an actual low tasse. I just want to conclude this episode, you know, with the very interesting discussion that takes place on Amud Bet, which is really sort of comparing and contrasting some of the, let's say, uh, lower points of the reign of Shaul HaMelech and David HaMelech, right? The king, you know, what happened to, to Saul and David? Um, and really sort of going through this discussion of, you know, what sins did they do and what were the punishments they got or were there times where they sinned where maybe they weren't punished? And, you know, I always find these discussions in the Gemara are interesting because we certainly know that today for certain parts of our religion, uh, there tends to be a little bit more of a tendency to sort of whitewash everything or to say that nobody actually sinned. And particularly with the passages about David HaMelech here and what happens to his children, um, there's something very, very painful when you read it, you know, that he really uh, was sort of uh, punished through his children uh, because of some of the things that he did. And I sort of read it and I was like, I don't know, there's something about that that doesn't feel right or fair, actually, because why should his children suffer because of something that he actually did? But I, I think the the bigger idea here is is to see the way that Chazal were very willing to talk about uh, these people in Tanakh and not to revere them in a way that they only never did bad, but to really recognize the human parts of them and that there really are stories in Nach that deal with very difficult subjects and very difficult outcomes. Um, and they're really willing to acknowledge them and not sort of like twisted, but we will find other passages where there is sort of a reading that's done about a particularly hard story where Chazal comes to say like, no, it really wasn't a sin or it really wasn't this. That's not one of these passages. This is a really realistic passage in our, on our death. So speaking again of the verses of the Navi, right? The, when Chazal do say that David didn't sin, it's really hard to reconcile that with the plain sense of the text of the Navi, because quite simply, David HaMelech says, King David says, Chatati Lashem, I sinned. So there's a lot of fancy footwork we could do and should do, will do, you know, at the right time um, about this story. But the thing that I found to be both painful and important here is that this idea that David was punished fourfold right, is, is not incidental. It appears in the Navi, it appears here in the Gemara, there's a severe toll taken on David HaMelech for the wrong that he did, right? It, basically, it affects his children. And this is exactly what you're, you're saying, your data, like the, the difficulty of this uh, conversation here is very much about the fact that it's not just that David is punished, it's that his family is the vehicle by which he is punished. That means that other people are punished along the way. It's very hard. I think you're right that the Gemara is not shying away from uh, what is really a, one of the most painful stories, I think. Yeah, uh, this certainly to me for is parents. Almost, right. This to me is almost the opposite extreme, like where we have those passages where the Gemara wants to say somebody was a total tzaddik and never sinned, even though there's a story in Nach or Tanakh where it's very clear there was a sin. You know, that's one extreme. 
But this is almost theologically like the opposite extreme. It's not just that you're saying he was punished of it, but that his children were fair game to to have that punishment be enacted. And again, I'm I'm left feeling troubled at the end of this stuff. I don't like it. Um, I mean, I I don't mind the daf as much as I don't like the sto- the original, right? Like, I think that the David Hamelach story is de- is very troubling. I think that the way his I don't know. Is it is it considered punishment or is it a retroactive rationale for why all this mess happened in his life? I don't know. The beginning at the beginning of David, the stories about David, he is all anybody would want anybody to be. And by the end of his life, you know, he's it's a tremendous amount of suffering. Right. And I think that's an interesting way to look at it. Like, How do you take somebody who had all this promise, but yet we still really use him as sort of, you know, he's idolized in a way, right? Of what he was, his devotion to God, you know, what he did through Tehillim, but there is so much pain and tragedy in his life story itself. Yes, yes. I, listen, he remains the model of worship. Every other king afterwards is compared to, did they do good like David HaMelech? You know, compared to David Aviv, right? This is always, or were they idol worshipers? Not like David Aviv, right? This is so he is the barometer for the rest of all kingship forever. But on a personal level, I, you know, I don't think anybody should be envying him. Uh, well, we'll leave on that heavy note. I don't have anything. I don't have a good way to wrap this up today. So I guess I'll just start with that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on All Nature Podcast. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP and some of its difficult points on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.